I am struggling with people's moral equivalency still. I mean, Barack Obama, who has rarely disappointed me, did so this week. I mean, his statement, I mean, it's not a horrible statement, but he said, if you want to solve the problem, then you have to take in the whole truth, and then you have to admit nobody's hands are clean. Literally, that's true, of course. But just give you two examples where this is, I don't think, a helpful statement at this moment. First of all, the attack was only a month ago. A more savage attack than we've ever seen in reverse. There's a big difference between collateral damage and what Hamas did. Second, <laughs> secondly, okay, the Israelis are now allowing a four-hour pause for people to get out. I'm sorry, people say, oh, wow, big of them. Okay, but it is a war that the other side started. So interesting. When they fire at Israel, it's a war. When Israel fires back, it's a war crime. A little crazy. So, and, and also, would Hamas do that? Would they give four-hour pause? They, no, no pausing. And then Israel's heritage minister was asked in an interview about using a nuke on Gaza. And he said that's one of the possibilities. He was fired, not allowed in the cabinet meeting anymore, disavowed by the prime minister. Would that happen in reverse? So enough with the moral equivalencies, I please. Mean, I think- all right, that was Bill Maher. Of course, Bill is, you know, he's vulgar and vile. Uh, but he has been kind of waking up on a few issues, and that's certainly one of them. This is Sandy Rios on Sandy Rios 24-7. We know that the world is upside down in its coverage of Hamas uh, and the attacks, the Sabbath day massacre to the uh, innocent Israelis on, on the Gazan border. It's, we'll never forget that. It's fact, in fact, uh, recently uh, in Hollywood, they played, they invited producers and people in the movie industry to come in and watch uh, what, what actually happened. It was live footage. And they did that because they're, they're understanding that Hollywood media, pop culture, news media are twisting and perverting what's actually happening. We see the marches with people, as I said, all those marches in New York City. We saw the one in London where... 300,000 people came out supporting Hamas. What do you think the BBC tells the Brits about this? What do you think? Well, I, I know what they tell them. The, Brit, the uh, BBC is so far on the left that they're, they, they're, they make no sense anymore. So people don't know the truth, and that's what we're trying to bring. Well, let me just say one thing. We know as of a few days ago that photographers working for the AP, the CNN, the New York Times, and Reuters were actually embedded with Hamas on October the 7th and went in uh, to, uh, and filmed the attacks. They knew about them. They knew about that attack in advance. And that's just a, a so offensive. That's so offensive. News media has never done that. They've always been embedded, you know, with troops to follow wars. But a, to a terrorist attack, knowing about a terrorist attack, attack and going in and getting, you know, great footage— uh, someone reminded me that the AP actually shared an office building with Hamas in the Gaza Strip. So, uh, so take it for what it's worth. And the New York Times just published an entire guide. I've got the uh, photo in front of me with handy diagrams to Hamas's tunnels uh, and um, all of their um, tunnels built under civilian buildings. The New York Times just printed a diagram. How do they know about that? Well, this is why people are so confused and don't know what's true and what isn't. And we'll march in the streets, you know, in honor of um, Hamas and defending them, the poor victims of Hamas. It's very twisted. 
but we have to change that. And I want to uh, tell you right up front, there's going to be a march for Israel, for the hostages, and against anti-Semitism in Washington, D.C. As I'm speaking to you, it will be tomorrow, Tuesday, November the 14th, from 1 to 3 on the National Mall. And I'm encouraging you, if you're anywhere near the Capitol, get in your cars and go. Go. Just outrank, outnumber uh, any of the uh, people who are supporting Hamas who might show up. Don't be intimidated by them. Don't. I mean, look, fear is what they play on. They try to frighten by their uh, brutal attacks. They're not going to do that in D.C., uh, not not what they did in Hamas, not yet. But you know what? They will do that if we don't fight back now. If we don't show strong force, that's exactly what's coming next. So I just ha- want to encourage you to go to the March for Israel and uh, for the hostages and against anti-Semitism. There will be a program with families of hostages and other notables uh, coming there to speak. So I, I encourage you to go. And that's tomorrow, November the 14th from 1 to 3 on the National Mall. Well, all right. I'm all fired up. I just am. This is so distressing to me. It's so wrong. And that's why we talk to you every day. And I couldn't do this without the support of Preborn. You know, little things can make a difference. A little note or a little smile or that little bitty stone that David hurled at Goliath and precious little babies. When you sponsor an ultrasound at Preborn, your gift, no matter how small, makes a difference in a very big way. And who will this little baby become? You're going to hear me talk today to someone that I haven't known since he was a baby, but uh, I've known him since he was a very young man. Uh, And so, you know, you might say, we don't know who these babies are going to become, just like I didn't know who he was going to become. And what giants will that baby slay? Uh, How about a mother who was spared from unspeakable sorrow because of you? You will never know the difference you're going to make with a donation of just $28 to introduce a mother to her child through ultrasound, which doubles a baby's chance at life. All you have to do is take a few small minutes to make a life-saving donation. Preborn will take it from there, as their network of clinics rescues 200 tiny babies every day and also shares God's love with the moms. They have a 100% charity rating, so you can give with confidence. So go to preborn.com slash Sandy. That's preborn.com slash Sandy, and make your most generous donation. Well, as always, you can call us at 662-821-2040. You can write us, send an old-fashioned email at sandy at afr.net. Uh, you can listen to us at Spotify, Amazon, or certainly at our home base, afr.net. Net. You can find us at sandyrios.com. That's the website. You can listen every day from that platform if that's easier for you. You can um, interact with uh, with our team and look at the things that we are posting on various things that we talk about on various shows at Sandy Rios 24-7 on Facebook and uh, at Sandy Rios Tweet and on and on it goes, all the ways that you can communicate with us. And all right, today we're going to be talking about, it will be kind of fun, because I'm going to interview someone I've known for such a long time, uh, but also we're going to get into what's happening in Israel, what it's like to be a Jewish American, because Paul Teller is Jewish, and we're going to talk about what's happening in Congress, all of those things, on today's edition of Sandy Rios 24-7. 
From American Family Radio, Sandy Rios. We are not called to be nice. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. I think the most important thing we need to demonstrate to our children is genuineness. That we actually believe what we say we believe. A longtime Fox News contributor, Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. Seek justice. Not social justice, but God's justice. What's right and what's wrong. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. We've got to say this is the line. Life is sacred. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up. Speak up. Say something. Do something. I'm very much for a ceasefire in Gaza. I am for a political solution because I think that's the only way that this conflict is ever going to be solved. We are here for peace. We are here to protest for Palestine and everything that's happening and we want Israel to cease fire as they're killing lots of innocent children. What you need to realize and I think everyone needs to realize is that the level and the extent of suffering is greater than that which we have seen. We've gathered today to show that in our millions and in our billions we are all truly Palestinians. Anyone shouldn't kill innocent children or innocent lives, it doesn't matter war or not war, but there should be certain rules that everyone should follow. I can have sympathy for two sets of people. All right, Sandy Rios with you. That's a shortened clip of CNN covering the many rallies on both sides that have happened in the last few days, but mostly pro-Palestine, mostly that. New York City uh, was filled with um, hundreds of thousands of people protesting on behalf of Palestine it's interesting, I noticed in the AP and some of the other stories, when I was trying to find out news about it, uh, well, especially in London, where there were, I believe, 3 million, I think that's what, or 300,000 is what they said. Uh, the one thing that they majored on in the news uh, articles was that they arrested counter-protesters. Uh, just a handful, of, they arrested 150 of them, but that was the thing they majored on. Uh, it's it's a, such a bizarre situation. In Paris, on the other hand, there were 100,000 people uh, uh, marching for against anti-Semitism and on, on behalf of Israel. So it was pretty amazing. And I'm going to show you one. Uh, well, I'll just tell you one. There's another one in New Zealand. This one, I have to confess to you, I kind of enjoyed. Uh, in uh, New Zealand, Auckland, I think it was, the pro-Palestinian forces were getting ready to march and they were met by a group of what's called, I think it's called the Maori tribe, who are like regular New Zealanders. They don't necessarily look like natives, but they have their native dance and they've kept their identity. And they got up on a platform, um, and this is what it sounded like. New Zealand on Sunday. Let's listen. <laughs> And guess what happened? Guess what happened? The pro-Palestinian marchers fled from the scene. 
I, I just sort of liked that. I think they're, you know, you saw a lot of testosterone on that stage, and that's what I think we're missing in a lot of the capitals of the world. All right. Well, we're, I want to interview someone this morning or introduce you to someone that I've known for a long time, uh, but he has always worked pretty much behind the scenes, uh, wonderfully gifted, and let me just tell you the kinds of things he's done. He currently serves, I'll go backwards here, he cur- currently serves as the executive director of Advancing American Freedom, which is an organization that Mike Pence began after he left the White House. But before that, Paul Teller was a special assistant to President Trump for legislative affairs. Uh, he also worked as chief of staff for Senator Ted Cruz. He was the executive director of the Republican Study Committee, which used to be, long time ago, and yawn a time before most of us were born. No, that's that's not true. It was the really conservative body of uh, members of Congress, and Paul was the executive director for them for a number of years. Uh, and there's more to say because Paul and I go back a very long way. But, Paul, good morning, and thank morning. you for joining me. Oh, great honor to be here. In fact, as you were introducing me, I was just thinking what a tremendous honor it is to be with you. As you said, after all these years, of kind of working together behind the scenes to actually kind of come into the sunshine a little bit, you know, is, uh, is going to be fun today. It is fun. And, uh, yeah, we're going to do serious and fun. And I, you know, as I told you, I do my worst interviews with my good friends. Paul is a very, very dear friend. And when I tell you our history together, you'll understand why. Back 20 years ago, at least, uh, Concerned Women for America gave an award to the best most outstanding young staffer on Capitol Hill, and it was the very young Paul Teller. I don't even were you even married then, Paul? Let's see. Uh, yes, uh, yes, but just barely. You know, just for a few years. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah now you're now you're a grown man and have two grown children. Are pretty much grown. Uh, right. So yeah, twenty and seventeen. Yeah. So all right. So Paul, um, let's talk about that the Wayback Machine for a second because. Um, the reason I met you was I had a, the vice president of, of governmental affairs for me was a, my, my, and a guy named Mark Schwartz. Now, I mentioned mm. him a few, uh, maybe once on this show or on my morning show because there's just never an occasion that would make sense to talk to an audience about him. But uh, Mike Michael was uh, a dear friend of mine. He, when I came to D.C., Mike took me under his wing and, and introduced me to people I needed to know and helped me understand how Washington works. And when I, he was just a wonderful advisor in his role as um, my one of my right hand men at CWA, and he was the one who found Paul Teller. Now I don't know how your, and we'll talk about it in a second. I don't know how your life intersected with Mike. Yeah, I mean the, the truth is, I think it was just similar to what it sounds like you're describing. Obviously, we didn't work in the same office, but he just took me under his wing, was a mentor, uh, showed me the ways of Washington. And not even just the technical ways, like, you know, here's this office and here's where you go to get a sandwich. Yeah, no, but, not but that, right. <laughs> not that. I mean, did some of that too, but but really just, you know, how to fight, how to stay true to your principles yeah. in the oh. face of tremendous pressure. So I just, I, I miss him. You know, as you know, we do kind of an annual happy hour toast to him because he would want us to keep fighting and do so in a happy, good spirited way. So yeah. yeah, thanks for bringing him up. He's great. Yes. Yes. And I want to close the circle on that by saying, Mike, uh, ended up being the chief of after C, after I left CWA he left uh, CWA and ended up being the uh, chief of staff for Tom Col- uh, Coburn Dr. Tom right. Tom Coburn from Oklahoma uh, and J- Mike was an incredible person and then he developed ALS 
and we all sadly watched him. Uh, the life sort of he it moved through him very quickly. Yeah. And so Paul it's does horrible. hold this annual event to because he made it, he had such an impact on so many people. He was Irish. He was fiery. He was a wonderful person. We'll talk about him sometime else. But I wanted people to know that Paul because that's an something that will that'll tether us for life. Our love and memories of Mike. Um, all right. So no question. So now you've been uh, in and around. Uh, no, no. I want to talk about this first. I didn't know you grew up in <laughs> yeah. Long Island. I was just in Long yeah. Island. My Bruce and I were just there a few months ago. I was at a a conference. So um, tell me about your family because you're Jewish. I haven't gotten to that part. Right. That's not really very important, except it is now. Right. Uh, and right. um, so, what is your past and your heritage as as a Jewish boy growing up on Long Island? Yeah, and that's that's the thing that you know, is so fascinating when you think about the arc of my career, which, you know, thank you for laying that out for your, your listeners and stuff, you know, obviously a conservative movement career through and through, no question, but yet grew up in a, you know, certainly left of center. You could even say liberal family, uh, whether it be parents, you know, cousins, other relatives in, in the family, uh, the town I grew up, a town called Plainview, New York, for anyone from that area, it's kind of Eastern Nassau County. So the first county out from New York City on Long Island, I was in the eastern part of that county and just kind of a regular town to, to grow up in, you know, nothing uh, flamboyant or, or anything like that. Um, but also mostly, mostly liberal folks for the, for the most part, you know, maybe moderate to left of center, that kind of thing, but certainly not a conservative area uh, to grow up in. And yet uh, this kind of winger guy <laughs> gets created from that from that cloth no one really knows how I mean, there's all the jokes in the family i was dropped on my head as a child you know I was are they still speaking on, to you <laughs> yeah I just, you know, so no one can really understand so the truth damage is, at really, birth yeah right some sort of yeah. right something in the hospital um but no one really knows and i to this day don't truly know because it wasn't like i was reading all these conservative books or i had some sort of conservative mentor it just was it was for me, it was the um, start of the Reagan years is kind of when I was coming into my political awareness. Um, and I just remember coming to conservatism mainly through some of the social issues like crime and education and just kind of feeling that even though I didn't know a lot about the political parties or what it meant to be a conservative or liberal, all I knew was the people that call themselves Democrats and liberals were just so bad on crime. You know, they had more, uh, more sympathy for the victims. And were, they were with the teachers unions. And even as a young kid, hated the teachers unions, mainly because they went on strike at our school district <laughs> twice while I was there. And I just had this kind of gut level instinct uh, to know that that was wrong. Like you shouldn't be using kids as pawns to get a better salary, better benefits or other things they were asking for. So right off the bat, I think just became, became this conservative kind of on my own, just from the environment, if you will. Well, so uh, did you go to Duke University thinking you were going to major in political science, not knowing much about the parties and about the political right, process? But, to be honest, not really, because I would say through like middle school and high school, I was a uh, kind of a math science guy. That's what I was good at, best grades. That's what I figured, well, I guess I have to do something in that. And it, it, it just started to pivot towards the end of high school. In fact, I'll never forget, I just math professor for, you know, um, BC calculus, you know, the most advanced level calculus and wonderful woman, Miss Williams. And I'll never forget just on like the last kind of parent teacher night when my parents went in, I was, you know, senior in high school. And she just said, 
Paul is fantastic at math. Whatever you do, don't let him go into math. And it was like <laughs> shocking. I was like, how, how can this woman who I love, who I'm doing well in her class, and the, what she meant was I wasn't meant to go into math. I was meant to do something with human beings, with people, with ideas. And even this math teacher saw that. And so I was starting to pivot from those moments. And yeah, so by the time I was, you know, freshman, sophomore year at Duke University, realized, all right, this politics thing, I think, is actually more, uh, more my calling. And so then you went to grad school at American University in poli-sci. And uh, well, we'll be back with Paul in just a second because we do have a lot to say. Uh, and he has a lot of expertise. But I want to bring to your attention Christian Healthcare Ministries. I had a most interesting interview which I'll with Pierre Corey. Uh, he's one of the heroes of the COVID incident over the weekend, and I'll be playing it soon. And he volunteered to me without even, we weren't talking about anything like this, about how these uh, ministries that pool their resources and provide insurance, are. that's exactly who he works for now, or works with. He said insurance companies, he cannot work with them anymore because uh, they are beginning to, you know, tell people what they can and can't have. They're certainly more strict about what they'll cover, and they surely don't want to cover things that are uh, like COVID treatment-related or anti-COVID shots. So uh, Pierre Corey actually feels like these um, ministries, like Christian Healthcare Ministry, is a great way to go for your medical care. So uh, the, I thought I'd bring that, tell you about that. I thought you'd find that interesting because I did too. If you want to be... Um, separate from the insurance that you're used to. I know we've all grown up with insurance. We thought we could trust them just like we thought we could trust our doctors and our hospitals, but we've learned some really bitter truths, haven't we? And so it's probably a really good time to explore a different kind of coverage for your medical bills. Where there are no restraints, you can make your own choices about what you want to happen to you what treatments you want, what doctor you want to go see, what hospital you want to go see, uh, because that's how it works. You you take on those bills yourself, make your own decisions, and then you send those bills to Christian Healthcare Ministries, and they reimburse you, uh, depending on what plan you have. So that's how it works. Go to chministries.org slash Sandy. That's chministries.org slash Sandy, and check out which plan would be best for you and your family. Paul, we know what's happening in campuses right now when it comes to uh, oh, anti-Semitism. And, and we'll get into that maybe a little bit. But I, what was it like when you went there? Because I, I, when I was at CWA, which was not that long after you must have graduated, uh, I, had, I encountered some American University students at a nail salon. And I'll just tell you the, very quickly. <laughs> I was, you, you probably, look, I know you know nothing about a nail salon. But I, you sit like <laughs> uh, you got your nails under this little light and, and these old bars that they had, bar nail, nail bar, that's what I'm trying to say. They, these girls were surrounding <laughs> me. Like we were almost, you know, finger to finger because we're drying our nails. And they're talking yeah. about uh, how bad the United States is. And it was all, all of that. And I'm listening and I'm like, can't help Amazing. because they're right there talking to me. And I finally said, you know, girls, can I ask you a question? Do your professors at American University ever say anything good? about the United States. And there was mm. a long pause, Paul, and then they they said, "No, not really." And I remember <laughs> yeah, saying to them, amazing. "Does that not tell you something? Really?" Okay, so my question for you was, how was it when you were there? Yeah, it, it frankly sounds very similar to what you just described. I mean, 
granted, I was there for graduate school, which is, you know, a different field than undergrad, but still you could tell, get a sense of the campus and my department and, you know, political science, all of that. Yeah. Liberal professors, liberal, uh, except for one. Um, and he was kind of the token, you know, the head pat conservative, whatever, but yeah, other students were, were liberal. The things we read, I remember reading these like radical feminist books and, you know, of course, if I ever kind of brought up the fact that, Hey, sh- you know, if we're going to read that, shouldn't we at least read the other sides and conservative, but no, of course not, you know, it's not considered serious scholarship, but you know, all that stuff. Um, but uh, I did get a little bit of, uh, my, my jabs in, I, I wrote this article for a group called accuracy in academia. You've probably heard of them, but yes, anyway, I remember they had them. This kind of remember them. They had this campus report and I wrote this very long kind of scathing article about American university poli sci, basically just saying how biased it was, how liberal it was, how you know intolerant of views like mine. And ironically, even though we were just a few miles away from the White House, the Capitol, the seat of government, we never really interacted with with real politicos, you know, in any meaningful way. Um, it was all just, you know, reading kind of pie in the sky books about things that never actually happened, you know, and um, so it was kind of shame. Anyway, that's a long way to say I finished what I started. But I immediately jumped into the conservative movement, even during grad school, because I knew I'm like, if I just do this academic thing, I'm going to come out knowing less than I did when I started. So um, I better jump into real world politics, you know, right off the bat. You know, uh, it's very interesting to me, Paul, that you had all of these instincts. And since I know you well and I know that, you know, you and I don't know which of who of us is more conservative. We're both very conservative. Oh, yeah. uh, you're you're strong and powerful and funny, always funny. But you are uh, you're unbending in your views, <laughs> as you know I am. Which it, I'm not maybe as funny. Absolutely. I should learn more learn more charm from you. I think. But anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I um that says a lot to me about your character. But I then I have to go back and ask you about the Jewish influence in your life. We skipped over that. Yeah. Was there any, did you guys go to synagogue? Was there, are, were you secular Jews? What were you? And are you? I, I want to ask what were you, and then now I want to know what, what are you? Right. No, it's a, it's a great point. And, and the truth is, we could probably spend the whole rest of the interview talking about that, which of course we won't, but, um, but the, the very short version is, yeah, grew up, uh, you know, going to synagogue, but only, it was, it was, um, kind of only in a practical way. What I mean by that, it was, you know, to, you know, get the qualifications to be bar mitzvah, you know, in Jewish faith, when you're 13, you're kind of called to read the Torah in front of, you know, the, the synagogue, in front of the congregation, that kind of thing. And it's a big celebration, big party. So everything was kind of focused on that. And once that happened, age 13, then I just stopped and it wasn't encouraged, you know, for me to, for me to go further. So I wouldn't say it was, you know, that much of an influence, you know, and it kind of faded and came back maybe during college, obviously when you're away from home and some, some of the things you're grounded in, you may, you start looking for, you know, other attachments. So maybe it started returning, returning then. And then it certainly came back more when we had kids and we were putting them in, you know, um, uh, you know, in, in Hebrew school as well to again, get far in bat mitzvahed, uh, and obviously even to learn more because now my daughter, who's at UVA is in Hillel, you know, kind of a Jewish social group and Chabad, which is a little bit more of the more religious social group. She's in both and, you know, feels very passionately about that. My son, 17 year old high school senior, maybe less so, but still feels, I think the, uh, the connection that way. And I tell you, like in terms of me personally, now we actually recently 
uh, withdrew ourselves from the synagogue we had been part of here in Washington, D.C., mainly just because it had just gotten just far too too liberal, uh, politically liberal, not even just theologically liberal. I mean, just uh, uncomfortable. And, you know, and it wasn't free. You know, it wasn't like you you uh, could just kind of show up. It was, you know, there were expected dues in the thousands of dollars. And, you know, to pay that kind of money for things I didn't, we didn't really agree with and seem to make sense anymore. So now I'm really just doing kind of practicing Judaism just on my own ad hoc. I have a friend, we do kind of a monthly Torah study lunch thing and just prayer and other things I'll just do, you know, personally, but yeah, not, nothing in any formal way. Kind of now, a shame. We've taught, um, you know, at least, you know, we have other Jewish friends and there's conversations in the, uh, in the places that we meet. And uh, the impression is for, to me that there's, there's a change or shift going on among mm. uh, secular Jews, uh, left Jews on the left. I don't know if you think that. Do you see that in your family and friends who are Jewish? Or uh, do you see a shift uh, because of the attacks on Israel or, or not? Yeah, you know, I definitely have been seeing it because, you know, as you can imagine, I'm on, you know, countless text threads and WhatsApp threads and signal threads and any other app you could think of. Um, you know, some Jewish friends and, friend and family, you know, in Israel, around around the United States and elsewhere. Um, and yeah, it does seem ones who have been traditionally left leaning, traditionally Democrat, you know, voted for Joe Biden, voted for Hillary Clinton. And all of a sudden, man, they they do sound suddenly, you know, much more conservative, at least on this issue. And I think it's for some of them, they realize, oh, my gosh, being Jewish doesn't qualify them in like work, uh, not work, um, woke circles. Sorry for misspeaking there. In other words, I think they always thought they'd be incorporated by the larger left movement in into the, um, you know, the protection of the woke, if you will. But I think they're realizing, oh, my gosh. They're not, and uh, that a lot of their left-wing friends are pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel, sometimes even just blatantly anti-Semitic. Um, so I think we are seeing that change. The question is, and I guess we won't know this for a little while, does it last, right? If, you know, God willing, the you know Hamas war on Israel ends soon, do these Jews kind of snap back into being what they were before, or does some of it last, right? In other words, when we get to the time to vote, for let's say president or Congress next year, do they vote Republican? Do they vote conservative? Or do they go back to their kind of traditional ways when they realize, oh, wait a minute, I hate Trump and I'm pro-choice. So I guess I still have to vote Democrat, even though the Democrats are, you know, no longer the uh, consistently pro-Israel party. I don't yeah, know. I think the, the jury is still out on that. Well, you know, the, that's what the Old, the Old Testament is all about is the, the, the Jewish people God-loving, calling Abraham, creating the, a group of people that he loved, the apple of his eye, and uh, them rebelling and then serving under other gods and, you know, having no interest, and then judgment comes to them, and then they repent, and they come back. That's the story. And I think uh, we all know that, Paul, and that's the way hu that's the human beings are like that. It's not just the Jewish people. But I think, oh, yeah. um, you know, according to, to prophecy in the Old Testament— the old Ezekiel prophecy of the dry bones, that's all about calling Israel back to life and to understanding mm. who God really is. And you guys have an incredible history. And of course, as a Christian, you know, you've heard me say, I think, I'm not, that we are joined oh, at yeah. the hip, even if 
Uh, if you guys don't Absolutely. embrace Jesus, that's what we hope happens. I'm just, but we, meanwhile, we know you're the apple of God's eye. We love you guys. And you are, you're just our, your family to us. So um, it's, it's, it's all good. And you have such a great history. I think this is a great time for Jewish people who didn't grow up hearing their history to get involved yeah. and learn. You'll be so proud. I mean, you really will. Um, all no, right. I appreciate, so, appreciate you saying that. I appreciate you saying that. And just last co- comment, I know you're looking to move on, but just thank you, by the way, to just the evangelical Christian world, Catholic world, really the, any non-Jew who's just standing up for Jews, standing up for Israel. We hear it. We feel it. It's so powerful. It means so much. And I think that's also giving an education to some of my liberal Jewish friends that see that our true best friends on this earth are believing Christians. Um, and so I think they're finally seeing I've been saying it for years, but now my friends and family are, are finally seeing it firsthand. So thank you. Yeah. Well, let me just let me interject something practical uh, because I actually started. I wanted to start with this and I forgot. So uh, tomorrow... Tomorrow, and that would be, by, uh, by the time you hear it, that will be in November the 14th, which is, I'm recording on the 13th. November the 14th on Tuesday from 1 to 3 in Washington, D.C., there will be a march for Israel and for the hostages and against anti-Semitism. Uh, and, of course, it takes a lot of courage to march in those marches, and they're bringing in uh, families of hostages uh, that are being held by Hamas, they have a whole program planned, and so uh, all any of you that are near the capital and listening in Virginia, all the areas, time to you know get in your cars and drive in and just overwhelm. You know, do what the Maoris did in New Zealand. Just let your presence be known. <laughs> I'm, right. Listen, because look, they the um, uh, the uh, uh, let's see, I'm not sure what, what term to use. There are so many choices. Uh, but the uh, the uh, true believers in Allah felt free to occupy our uh, mall in Washington with a Washington Monument right behind them and offer up prayers to Allah Akbar to Allah after the massacre. Um, and so we can we certainly should feel we should take back our free land. It is uh, a land of freedom for any nationality that wants to embrace American ideals. Ideals, but I have to tell you, supporters of Hamas are not those people. And so I would just say, go, go, go. It's from one to three. And uh, I also want to remind you, there's lots of ways to support Israel and Jews, your your Jewish friends, and to fight against this kind of terrorism. Bruce and I are waving. We have an um, Israeli flag on our flagpole right under our American flag. Oh, great! Uh, you can you can organize an event in your own community. You can let colleges, your university, your alma mater, let them know how you feel about anti-Semitism on campuses. There are a lot of choices. Uh, just do something. Call call your Jewish friends and tell them that you care about them and you're praying for them. So those are some of the things that you can do. Okay, I cannot let you go without us talking about some things that on Capitol Hill that you and I both are following, but you know best, Paul. This is your bailiwick. We have a brand new speaker. <laughs> I try. Yeah, it is. Okay, so Mike Johnson is the brand new speaker. We've been very excited about that. How do you think the new team, the new surrounding, the new mood in Congress is now after the initial kind of euphoria when there was unity? What do you think it's like now? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think there's still the honeymoon period, if you will, uh, from, you know, we talked to a variety of different members of Congress, senior staff, other folks. Uh, frankly, like yourself, uh, you know, who are, who are plugged into things around the political world around Washington. And yeah, there still seems to be that excitement for Speaker Johnson, trust uh, that he's going to do the right thing, that he's going to push 
conservative things. He comes from the conservative movement. You know, he's kind of one of us. So he, he knows it in his gut what, what is right. I, I think people understand he is, though, just one human being. And there's 435 in the House. And of course, he's got to deal with a 100 person Senate as well. So not everything will, in the end, turn out perfectly. But I think he, there, there's still a lot of faith that he is going to try, he's going to push conservative things. And uh, what we can really look at as one example is how, well, really two things. One, how he immediately turned right to support for Israel, both in word, meaning like kind of a House resolution supporting Israel. But then he uh, pushed this standalone Israel bill, just, you know, supplemental, not even that much money by Washington standards, I think about 14 billion, just supplemental funds to help Israel replenish its defenses, that Iron Dome that many of us have heard about and other ways of defending itself. And um, offset that money with uh, cuts in uh, the increases to the IRS that you may have heard about that Joe Biden you know, pushed through Congress last year. I, I um, heard about it. <laughs> yeah, just wonderful, right? I mean, just, yeah. just great. So right there, that, that built uh, some faith, some, some trust there. But then also just who he's been hiring. He's been hiring people from the conservative movement. So the people he's putting around him, uh, by and large, are trusted friends, people that we could just you know, call up and text and whatever else and say, hey, buddy, what are you doing here? Or we suggest this or how about that? So, I mean, that's that's provided some, um, you know, some hope. Now, this will be a tough week, obviously. Right. Because with the looming appropriations deadline, the funding deadline this Friday, um, it's it's going to be a little rough and tumble week, I think, because I hate to say it. And, you know, this Sandy better than anybody, but not all Republicans want to cut spending. You know, they don't want to reduce the size and scope of government. So he's got to face that within his own Republican caucus, let alone the whole House of Representatives, let alone the Senate. That also is not a bastion of uh, conservatism these days, unfortunately. So it's going to be a little rough and tumble week, but we'll, uh, I hope we get a good product by the end. All right. Let me just ask you, you know, this controversy, and let me just say that you listening, those of you listening may not know what, look, so much has been happening in the news, Paul, you understand people have oh, trouble yeah. following this, and yet it is so important because right now they are the House is, uh, holds the purse, purse strings for all the spending <laughs> for this country. And uh, the, the whole speaker fight, of course, delayed these decisions. Uh, we, I think Paul would agree with me that fight was well worth uh, being delayed. But now they, they're faced with this deadline this coming Friday, and they had 12 appropriations bills for all the different parts of government, which are massive, by right. the way that they had to decide. And uh, right away, uh, Mike Johnson had a plan, but now there's a bit of a toe-stubbing because he's, my understanding, he's calling for, this is too complicated, I recognize, for us to go into very much. But can you explain the controversy on the CR, the the short-term CR that he's calling for? Exactly, right, yeah, continuing resolution, which basically would say, instead of actually kind of solving the problem directly and, and passing the actual spending bills or even, you know, any, any details, it's just going to kind of say, we're going to keep things going um, as is into January. And what's different about this CR, this continuing resolution, it looks as of right now, and obviously these things change hour to hour, day to day, but as of right now, the plan is to break it up into two parts so that some parts of the government, some of the lesser controversial parts, everything's controversial, but the least controversial ones would be extended through, I think it's maybe it's um, mid-January. I'm forgetting the exact date. We can look that up for you. Um, 
But then some of the more controversial parts of the government would be extended as is through, I believe it's early February or maybe very late January, something like that. So they they split it up uh, on the notion that this way you never have the entire government shutting down all at once, uh, which is the normal way of Washington, that you kind of break up the fights. Um, The controversy, as you pointed out, comes from the as is part, meaning conservatives, yes, would love to if you're going to have to extend things, if you can't get everything funded this week, at least extend it past Christmas. So you don't send up, set up this artificial cliff, this artificial deadline right up to the holidays where people kind of feel forced to make bad decisions. Get it into January. That's great. But what conservatives don't love is that, again, there'll be no changes to the spending. It'll be all of the Biden-Harris spending, all of the spending in the government that we hate, all the programs we hate will be fully funded as is. From what I understand, no conservative reforms, nothing on border security that's different than now. So that's where I think conservatives are going to say, hey, wait a minute, I don't want this artificial Christmas deadline, but we got to have some conservative changes uh, in this uh, CR, in this continuing resolution. So that's, yeah. so that's, that's where the, the controversial part comes yeah. in between. Yeah. And you're going to be hearing about this in the news. And I just heard Trey Gowdy kind of chewing up conservatives in the House last night. So, you know, you're going to have this happy Uh, chewing up by people on the outside who are establishment Republicans from my perspective. So I want to ask you about one other issue and then we, we could talk for a very long time, but uh, I want to ask you this one other thing. This is huge to me. My husband, of course, is former FBI. We've been following their malfeasance now as we all have, but it's very painful personal for my husband. Uh, And um, they, uh, we thought that there was going to be some punishment by refusing this new FBI headquarters which is, by the way, as I understand it, I believe I understood it's like twice the size of the Pentagon uh, and million, hundreds of millions of dollars, and yet 70 right. House Repub- 300 million. Three, 70 House Republicans voted to approve that uh, construction. Can you explain that in, in a brief you know, word here, sort of brief? Honestly, to be honest, I really can't. I don't get it. I really don't get it. Um, it... it it, frankly, it may even just be kind of the larger Republican disease we seem to have in this town of supporting things we hate, right? I mean, like, for example, the thing about the Obamacare fight, how much we fought that to repeal that, and we did chip away at it under the Trump-Pence years. But then even still, we just go ahead and cheerfully fund the entire implementation of that law and all the other laws we hate. We just keep giving them the cash to do that. Um, I don't get it. So maybe this is, is just part of that. There's some some belief that, well, gee, gosh, why, you know, the FBI does do some good things. Why, therefore, should they be in an older building? And just not seeing that is does not at all meet the moment. It doesn't read the room, if you will. Uh, and it's just such an unnecessary expense for, for this moment. So, yeah, okay. I'm with you. I'm, I'm as baffled as you are. Well, you know, Molly Hemingway has a theory, and she, she tweeted this. And I thought, well, this is really wild. And I thought she must have some knowledge or she wouldn't say this. You know, the FBI, the same day this was passed in the House, uh, there was a, the FBI announced this arrest of this, oh, I want to say prostitution service uh, that was um, used by high-level politicians. Right. And they arrested two people. So Molly says, Molly infers that she thinks that some of these people that that voted for the building were involved in that. That's what she actually oh, said, Paul. Yeah. I mean, you know, 
we've seen a lot in this town together, right? I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's hard to be surprised by anything anymore, but uh, who knows? Obviously, we, I don't know if we know those kind of yeah. details, but no, yeah, well, no, we can't. there's something else going on that beyond what you and I can understand. I don't, I don't yeah. get it. Well, it, well, I mean, it, it would explain, wouldn't say that all 70 people that voted were involved in that, but you, it's worth looking into. If, if only the right did that, the right does not investigate or follow people or snoop like the left does. They love to do that yeah. and hold things over their opponents and threaten. Uh, but the left doesn't do, or right doesn't do that. We actually probably should do more of it, Paul, and expose some of the corruption that congressmen are aware of in each other's uh, personal lives and also just conduct. So, we, I mean, you know, like a couple of the congressmen now, we, like Pete Sessions lives in Florida and he represents um, Dallas. Uh, and then oh, there was yeah. another one. Yeah. So, I mean, these things should have been exposed, but uh, but they're not. So they, I think these guys know a lot about each other. And so it's just the, the corruption continues. Paul, any last thoughts from you? And again, let me just tell everyone you're the special assistant. No, no, you're not. You're the executive director <laughs> uh, for Advancing American Freedom. Uh, any last thoughts from you before we say goodbye? Well, I just would love to collaborate with with any of your listeners. You know, again, check us out, advancingamericanfreedom.com. As you'll see, it's just as the name implies. We're just every day we wake up and we're just trying to advance American freedom. Anything, any little step we could do to restore freedom in this country, most, most of which we could just accomplish by reverting back to the Trump-Pence years on so many policies, right? I mean, we just go back to that, look at border security and so many other things, and all of a sudden, we will have that measure of freedom that we had uh, back then. But obviously, not necessarily coming anytime soon with uh, our friends Biden and Harris in the White House. So we'll just, we'll just keep fighting, do all we can do every day. We'd love to work with, with you and your listeners. Yes. All right. Well, that's good. A good word. And we'll do that. I think our listeners are, are certainly interested in that, Paul. And let me just say on a personal note, you've grown up really well. I'm proud of you. And I, I'm, I'm really proud that we gave you that, that, that prize or that honor 20 years ago because you did, you've walked worthy of that award. So thank you for doing that, Paul. Thank you for not embarrassing me, okay? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. There's still time. No, no. But wait, there's right. still time. No, thank you so much. <laughs> Great honor. My pleasure. Great honor to be with you, as always. Thank you. Thank you, Paul Teller. All right, this has been Sandy Rios on Sandy Rios 24-7. This is Sandy Rios 24-7 on American Family Radio. Sandy Rios, back with you. You know, some of you have more resources than others. You know, you've just been more blessed financially. Uh, and sometimes you're really good at giving, and that's the reason God blesses you financially. And so if that's the case with you, would you consider a leadership gift to save babies in a bigger way than just providing $28 for an ultrasound? You know, your tax-deductible donation of $5,000 will sponsor Preborn's entire network for 24 hours and will rescue an average of 200 babies. Well, to donate, all you have to do is go to preborn.com slash Sandy. That's preborn.com slash Sandy. And check out the possibilities if you'd like to give more. You could also provide uh, an ultrasound machine if you have even more to give than 5000 There's all kinds of ways to help uh, preborn uh, ministries, and I hope that you'll explore that. Go to preborn.com slash Sandy. An all-out manhunt tonight in this small central New Jersey town just 40 miles southwest of New York City. After this man, wanted in connection to the attack at the Capitol on January 6, evaded arrest. Gregory Yetman, fleeing on foot into the wooded area near his home. 
police searching from the sky and on the ground. According to USA Today, Yetman is suspect number 278 AFO, wanted for assault of a federal officer, pictured at the Capitol in these photos on the FBI's website. In an interview earlier this year, Yetman indicated he was at the Capitol that day, but said he did nothing wrong. The FBI leading the multi-agency manhunt in the town of Helmeta. Officers in tactical gear, looking in vehicles, teams moving through backyards, armed with long guns and canines. There were officers running through everybody's yards, um, asking questions. Even though the sun has gone down, we can still see Joint Terrorism Task Force agents going door to door looking for Yetman. According to police, Yetman is in his 40s, last seen wearing a red jacket and baseball cap. He served in the New Jersey National Guard for 12 years and was honorably discharged in March of 2022. They are determined to attain this gentleman today. That is their effort. Tonight, authorities are urging residents to shelter in place. Streets here in Helmetta were closed for a period of time. Tactical vehicles and law enforcement officers are still lining this street behind me, which is near the house where authorities believe Yetman was staying. David, it is still a very active scene here. All right, so that sounds, man, a dangerous person on the loose. I mean, a criminal. The neighbors think he's a criminal. The news uh, media is produce, pre presenting him as a criminal. But we find out over the weekend that there's a very different story here. Uh, Greg Yetman is not quite what the news made him sound like. And so I've asked Bruce to join me now, Bruce, the former FBI agent, to talk about what we know that really happened uh, to this guy and who he really is. It's amazing to me when you actually read what the truth of this story is what what happened that day. Uh, Gregory Yetman, a person who served 12 years in the National Guard, was deployed both to Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, later was serving in the National Guard, who was also a, a guard down at Gitmo for a time, um, was accused on from January 6th of assaulting a federal officer. Now, Look, I am not in favor of people assaulting a federal officer, obviously, being a former one. However, uh, I think that in this instance, what was being done is a message was being sent to all of us that if you uh, try to do something against the Biden administration, they are going to bring the FBI or what, whatever law enforcement agency down on you like a ton of bricks. Um, according to the reporting now, um, the FBI had been surveilling Mr. Yetman's house for three months. Now, I can tell you, in three months, you know exactly where a person is going and where they're going to be and what time of the day they're going to be there and whether or not they'll be armed, things like that. This reminds me of what happened out in Waco when the ATF served that warrant uh, out there and ended up in a gunfight, which turned into a standoff. When... All they had to do was wait. They, they had been surveilling uh, the David, David Koresh, Koresh. Yeah. and knew that he went out jogging frequently off the, off the compound. They could have just waited for him to be jogging where he obviously could carry no weapon and arrest him. Same thing here. They know Gregory Yetman would be going to work and that he would not be armed and that they could, they could stop him and arrest him. But instead, they bring SWAT vehicles, drones, helicopters, dogs, multiple agents start kicking in doors, uh, threatening his brother, 
They broke into his brother's uh, gun safe, even though his brother had nothing to do with this. Um, And the irony is that after Gregory fled that day, and and look, I'm I'm not excusing him for fleeing, but he ended up voluntarily surrendering two days later. And my point is, that's what should have happened to begin with, is they should have noticed Gregory and said, we want to talk to you. You're, go- you're going to be arrested uh, for what went on January 6th. Here's when you need to appear. And then if he did not appear at the FBI office on that day, then you take these escalated steps. Yeah, so they, the uh, Julie um, Kelly is reporting all about what actually happened in their neighborhood and how they frightened the neighbors and how the neighbors are still defending him. He's a good guy and we don't know what happened uh, with him on January the 6th, but we know what's happened to the other J6ers. We know they've been accused of things that are worded in a way that are much more serious. Like when a guy goes into the speaker's office and puts his feet up on her desk, uh, that doesn't seem too terribly wicked and criminal or like an insurrectionist. An insurrectionist doesn't usually go and you know take photos at a desk or pray in front of the dais in the, the House or the Senate. Uh, but these are the kinds of things that have been twisted into being something very serious. And that's why I, you know, I jumped to, I bet he didn't do anything. That's where I jumped to. No, and you know, I can tell you uh, that this arrest, the, the steps that were taken, are completely, completely not by protocol from when I was an FBI agent. I remember arresting bank robbers that were, had been armed and committed multiple robberies. We went as a squad and arrested the person. We didn't call SWAT. We didn't certainly call helicopters and dogs and, and all this. And I, look, I believe in officer safety. You have to do what's, what's prudent. But when you have a guy like this, you do not need to go to these steps. This was done to intimidate other people yep. and, and to intimidate the public into if they know anything about anybody who may have been there on January 6th, you better call better the cough FBI it up. Better and cough. cough it up. They've got a whole. They've got citizen groups. I wish I could think of the names. It's a really odious name. A citizens who are helping them search Facebook, social media, uh, where friends or family members say something about the person that happened to be there on January the sixth. They're expecting to arrest three thousand more people. It's really, it's really terrible. And so, you know, we talked to Paul at the end of that interview about the. Um, House of Representatives, 70 House Republicans voting to approve $300 million towards the construction of a new Federal Bureau of Investigation headquarters in Great Belt, Maryland. Now, that's $300 million towards it. That's not even the entire cost of it. And 70 House Republicans voted for that. Now, you heard what I say about said about what Molly Hemingway speculated. Who knows about that? But I would say this. We had um, whistleblower Steve Friend, former FBI supervisory special agent on with us probably six months ago. And uh, Steve, you know, testified before Congress, and he is so upset that the that 70 members of the Republican Party would vote for this building. It's a reward for what we all know is an agency that's absolutely out of control. And this is what he said in his tweet. He said, last year, I brought protected whistleblower disclosures about FBI weaponization to the House GOP. They used it to go on TV and get elected. I lost my career, and I am under FBI investigation. Today, the House GOP voted to give the FBI a $300 
million-dollar headquarters. Soulless demons go to, and he finishes it the way you expect. Now, I don't know what the story is there, but I, uh, I just think we know there's trouble. There's just trouble. Things are not right. But I wanted to bring that to you, Bruce. Honey, thank you for doing some research. Any final thing you want to say about that that you left out, maybe? Well, I understand why Steve Friend and the other gentlemen that came forward as whistleblowers are so upset because many promises were made to them. Uh, look, they really laid it on the line. And I'll guarantee you, when other potential whistleblowers see the treatment that was now afforded to Steve and the other people, they will be very reluctant about coming forward. And that's exactly what was the purpose of um, the Biden administration handling things the way they did, the DOJ. I can't think of anything else to say about it. I'm, I'm just heart sick about it, but there it is. Uh, one more disappointment. So, all right, tomorrow is that rally uh, for Israel, March for Israel in Washington, D.C. And let me remind you, there are things that you can do to support Israel. You can fly an Israeli flag. Uh, you can call your Jewish friends. You can give to Jewish causes that you can trust. Uh, you can, you know, tweet, use your social media and support of Israel. There are lots of things that you can do. So let me just encourage you to do that right now because our Jewish friends, especially in America, are really disconcerted by what they're seeing in college campuses, in the media, uh, by some of their friends. It's really a hard time for them. They never thought they would ever face this kind of persecution in America, and neither did we. All right, this has been Sandy Rios with you on Sandy Rios 24-7. You can call us at 662-821-2040. You can go to sandy at afr.net to make or to create or to send an email. You can listen to us on any pod, podcast platform, Facebook, Sandy Rios 24-7, website, sandyrios.com. As we say goodbye, I want to remind you we have uh, great sponsors. Preborn is one of them. They've been... They've rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and you helped them to do that. So thank you. So let's keep that going. You can do it at preborn.com slash Sandy. And Christian Healthcare Ministries, a wonderful way for you to cover your medical expenses and shed the restraints and limitations of health insurance. Go to chministries.org slash Sandy. Thank you for listening to today's edition of Sandy Rios 24-7.